Welcome to Humco Learn, a lively and informative podcast where you, the listeners, get the inside scoop on the issues affecting the students and families of Humboldt County. I'm Michael Davis Hughes, Superintendent of Schools for Humboldt County and the host of Humco Learn. For each edition of the podcast, we feature a special guest whose work intersects with education. And today, I am thrilled to be joined by Humboldt County Health Officer, Dr. Candy Stockton. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's an absolute pleasure and honor. So we're going to dive right in. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to serve in this current position? Sure. So I was actually born here in Humboldt County. I was born in the old General Hospital in Eureka. Um, I am a fourth generation Humboldt County resident, um, but moved away to go to school and actually spent most of my adult life away from here, moved back about five years ago. I will say my earliest memories are hanging out at the Sequoia Park Zoo um, and the park there. For those of you who are old timers here, playing on what used to be the, the old train engine that was there and those really high, not very safe slides out of the redwoods that you could get great speed on with some furniture polish and wax paper, <laughs> um, <laughs> which I only admit because those slides are not there anymore. <laughs> So, but you were a health officer. That doesn't sound too uh, too healthy or at least safe. I, I also, Don't try the advice at home. I also used to be a child, so you okay. know, I, I had right. a child's judgment about these things, and apparently very permissive parents. Since I don't think I bought my own furniture polish, but um, yeah, no. So I I've, I've been this area has been home to me my entire life. So I was really excited when I had the opportunity to move back home about five years ago. I am a primary care doctor. I do family medicine and uh, with a subspecialty in addiction medicine. And over the last 20, 25 years, you know, it's really become obvious to me how many of the health issues and health outcomes that we face are really a product of societal circumstances, of, of the world we live in, the environment that we live in, as much as it is about personal diseases and personal choices. And so I've really been drawn to public health, the, the practice of, of kind of looking at our health as a community for the last decade or so, and, and have been thinking about making this transition for six or seven years. And and uh, when the opportunity opened up again about a year ago, it just seemed like the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. What are this, what was the catalyst for you to get into just medicine and become a doctor? Was there a, was there a point of time? Was that something you talked about childhood? Like I, I always wanted to be a doctor. I always wanted to be a doctor. Uh. Um, I don't know how much of that was colored by my parents. So my father actually um, worked in his family's um, paving business here in town and had an injury that made that more difficult for him and decided to go back to school. So my earliest, earliest memories are like laying on my dad's back as he was studying from his medical textbooks. I was like two and he was reading medical textbooks and I'd be looking over his shoulder pretending I could read them as well. So I was raised in that environment. Um, but uh, I will say that I have six younger siblings, and I'm the only one who was who became interested in that. So mm. I think it was a combination of, of you know, my personal interest as well as being exposed to that as an option early on. But I can't remember a time, other than very briefly, where I wanted to be an archaeologist and go excavate pyramids, which I hear is not really a full time job. Um, 
but where I ever wanted to do anything besides be a doctor. Six younger siblings. Well, it sounds like you had some uh, responsibilities as the eldest of seven. Eldest that, of six. I'm sorry. sorry. Eldest of yeah. six. So, so five siblings. Well, you know, maybe there was a, an attitude of care that was just in, in brought to bear because of your standing in the family. You know, my parents said I used to bring home stray animals to take care of if I'd find them injured someplace. I, I can't remember a time in my life where I didn't think it was my responsibility mm. to take care of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Now you're taking care of all of us in Humboldt County. No pressure. Um, as the health office of Humboldt County, you know, some, some people may not understand what the responsibilities are. What are some of those responsibilities that many people may not know about? Yeah, so a doctor traditionally takes has a one-on-one -on relationship with a patient. So they address the medical issue in that patient, the diagnosis in that patient, the prescriptions in that patient. But somebody needs to look at how health issues intersect with all of us. So for instance, if I'm a doctor treating you for your infection that you got from polluted water, right? I, I can treat your infection, but I can't really address the water system mm -hmm. as a whole as an individual doctor. In public health, we look at at things that affect the whole community. So are there disease outbreaks? If there are, you know, what are the sources of those outbreaks? What are measures that we could take? But we also look at things like food safety. We're responsible for overseeing rabies control. Um, we uh, look at environmental health issues. So we're looking at things that you need to keep you healthy as an individual that aren't just you. Mm. They're a product of our community as a whole. Yeah. So like infection control in tattoo parlors. Um, whether or not a <laughs> dog, whether or not a dog has a health issue that would allow it to be exempt from having rabies vaccines. Huh. Things that you wouldn't necessarily wow. think of. No. No, and perhaps that role as a health officer, community-wide aspects of health was brought to bear most acutely in the last three years around COVID, right? Yeah, very interesting, that difference between the individual patient-doctor relationship and then doctor-community health relationship, so... Tell us, what is the difference between a public health director, and I had Sofia Pereira on this podcast a few weeks ago, um, and a health officer? Sure. So actually, she told me that, and I considered going back and listening to her answer so I could make sure we gave the same answer, <laughs> but I decided to wing it. Um, so... I am a medical consultant, right? I come with a particular set of skills and a particular set of abilities because of my medical license and my medical training. That does not mean that I am qualified to do things like manage the really complicated budget and financial health streams, um, manage the staffing and the pro you know, make program decisions about what we are capable of doing and what we're not capable of doing. And so I am the person who brings a specific skill set, the medical skill set to that practice. And Sophia is the person that keeps us all organized and running. 
Um, so, so you might think of her as like the CEO of a business that mm -hmm. is really ultimately responsible for making the bigger decisions, whereas I might be more like the technical consultant in that business that comes in and, and provides information and advice around a specific set of skills. And then there are also things that we do that require a legal order, right? So I am, a, I am an officer. That's what that health officer means. And yeah. I do have some legal authority which is quite honestly better if it never has to be actually utilized. But I, I do have some some authority as officer of the law to to take certain steps to ensure the safety of our community. Yeah, yeah, great, very interesting. What do you love most about your job? Um, Honestly, the thing I love most about my job is that there's just so many different aspects of it. So I get to look at infectious diseases and communicable diseases. I get to do work around addiction and substance use in our community. I get to learn about environmental health issues. I get to touch bases with so many different things. And <clears throat> I have a sort of short attention span, so I really love the fact that I get to shift between a lot of different things over the course mm. of the day and the week, and there's not a lot of like routine to my schedule. Keeps it interesting. Keeps it interesting. Now, you took on this role as we began to emerge from a global pandemic, if, if we can say that we are emerging from it. As you reflect on these past three years, how has this experience shaped your understanding of the role of local healthcare providers in supporting the health of its citizens? So when the pandemic started, I was not the health officer. I was a practicing physician in the community. And so I, I have that experience coming into this. I'm not sure that I've really had a chance to process hmm what all of that means yet. We've been so busy responding and trying to make the best, most responsible decisions that we can with the information that's available, and that's both as a healthcare provider providing care directly to patients with COVID and in my current role as a health officer, more responsible for seeing kind of our systematic response to it. I'm I'd, I'd like to have some glib answer for that, but I, I honestly think that it's going to be another three to five years before we really have a chance to step back and process, like, what did all of this mean? Mm. We've been having some of our final meetings for our kind of more intense observation and, and response to COVID over these last couple of weeks. And it's sort of been an interesting thing. It came in with this explosion and it was this high tension and high stress and high stakes every single day, all the time. And it's sort of going out with the whimper. <laughs> and and we've sort of been talking about what does that mean and, and what are we going to, to take away from this? Um, and I don't know yet. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to take some time for, I think, for all of us to process, right? Yeah, we see it in our kids, you know. Um, it's so interesting to see how our students are continuing to demonstrate just the the after effects of, you know, going through something so significant so, and so destabilizing, you know. And our, I know that our whole community is still coming to terms with that. So it'll, it'll take a yeah. while, take a while. Again, thinking about COVID-19 pandemic, what is one event or situation, positive or negative, that's seared into your memory? Yeah, so I, I got this question in advance, and I thought about this a lot, about how personal I actually wanted to share on this issue. But I, I think I, I'm going to be both personal and honest in this situation. So 
It's hard to remember anymore, but in the first nine months that we were dealing with COVID cases locally, there was no vaccine available yet. And my husband has an immunocompromising healthcare, health condition. And um, we made a decision in our clinic. We had three providers, one of whom was pregnant and the other of whom was older than I was. So we made a decision to segregate out our care and that only myself and one of our medical assistants would interact with patients who potentially had COVID and who had COVID. And so for nine months, I saw and regularly tested and provided care to people who had COVID with no vaccine and with a limited supply of protective equipment. Um, we were bagging up our masks at the end of the day in paper bags and storing them so we could cycle through them because this was back in a time period where we didn't have enough yet. And um, as a healthcare provider, I was one of the earliest people who got the vaccine when it became available, which helped a little. But I'll tell you that my most enduring memory of the pandemic is when my husband finally became eligible for vaccines. Mm -hmm. And I took him into his vaccine and I just sat in the car and cried while he got his vaccine. I was so relieved because in addition to worrying about myself, in addition to having friends and colleagues in other areas who had gotten COVID and died themselves or lost family members to it while they were working with COVID patients, I lived with the fear every day that I was going to bring it home and kill my husband. Mm -hmm. And so for me, like when he got that vaccine, it was this tremendous weight off of me because I'd felt obligated to provide that care to people. It's the oath that I took, but it was so scary going in every day and doing it and wondering if I was gonna be the person that killed a family member. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that very personal <laughs> um, and a very intense experience. Wow, wow. One of the things that I think we all learned through COVID is the importance of leaning on one another. And the educational community certainly leaned on public health during the height of the pandemic, let's put it that way. You know, the uh, expertise and the guidance of how to keep our students safe, our staff safe, and our families. From your perspective, what benefits have you seen in the short time that you've been the health officer when local agencies such as public health and public schools work together to address a, a community concern or a community crisis? I actually think this is going to be one of the great successes or one of the great benefits that came out of the pandemic. I mean, there's nothing that's all good or all bad. There's always something to be taken from any experience. And I think this has brought so many of our organizations closer together. And we are stronger and smarter when we approach a concern or an issue together than we are alone. We bring so many different perspectives, so many different skill sets. And and we have other challenges coming. I think we'll talk about this a little bit later, but we have you know a fentanyl overdose crisis that is brewing. We have other things that affect our children, our communities, our family, and this process of working together and building these relationships and coming at this from a multi-pronged, multi-faceted approach has made us stronger and smarter and better. And I'm really grateful for that. And I think that those relationships will continue. Um, public health historically has operated in a little bit of a, a silo or a shadow space because a lot of what we do is targeting you know, infectious diseases, communicable diseases. And so we, we don't really advertise our presence a lot. We sort of operate in the background. And and I think this has changed that and made us more openly part of different different collaborations that are happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, I just want to express appreciation to public health for the way in which you helped us 
educators navigate this global pandemic. Um, yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. and I absolutely agree with you. You know, one of the things that we've experienced as educators is how we leaned on families, on parents, you know, especially when students went to remote learning from home. They became, you know, part of that fabric of teaching the parents and the families did. And so there was absolutely that re reliance upon one another in a way that we had not perhaps never seen before. I, I certainly don't want to see that go away, even if COVID goes to the background, because, and I don't think it will, but I think we've developed those relationships which are now solid and we need to, uh, we need to make sure that those can continue to thrive. So, yeah, yeah. So understanding that we're not really in a post-COVID time, we're kind of through COVID. I don't know what the right term is to use, but we're all learning to live with COVID. What is the greatest public health challenge that's facing Humboldt County, especially for children, families? Oh, I, sadly, I think that that's an, a relatively easy question to answer. So anytime you have a significant trauma of any sort, there are mental health repercussions, mm -hmm. depression, anxiety, isolation, increases in substance use, and it's affecting adults and it's affecting children. And, and, and I, to a large extent, it's hard for people to understand how successful we were locally at fighting the pandemic. The, we hoped initially naively that you know that we might be able to slow or stop this from becoming a permanent condition right but regardless of what happened we knew we needed to slow it if you remember in the beginning of the pandemic the death rate was between one and three percent of people who became infected with COVID would die from it and a large percentage of those at that time actually needed ventilation care so Humboldt County has approximately 130,000 residents and um, one percent of that is what, 1,300 people? Um, I'm not great at math on the fly. I tend to move decimal places, so it could be more than that, but it's at You're least right. that many. Yeah. Um, and, and so if you think about that, if, if COVID had hit us full on, full steam, you know, if we hadn't been able to slow its arrival here until vaccines were, you know, more widely available, until we had a better understanding of what treatment worked, we could have expected, you know, roughly 1,500 deaths within a short period of time. And if we followed the same trend as other cities that it hit hard in the beginning, many of those would have been healthcare workers. And we already have a shortage of healthcare workers across the country. We have a worse shortage of healthcare workers in rural areas, in specifically in Humboldt County. The long-term consequences of that would have been absolutely devastating. So I know you think right now you have to wait a long time for a doctor's appointment, but imagine if we had lost a third of our doctors and nurses, right? right. I imagine if, if that had happened and our inability to recruit and replace those would have had repercussions for the next two or three decades because it takes 10 to 20 years to actually train a doctor or nurse to get them to that point. Mm -hmm. So so nobody is replaceable, but certain skills take longer to replace than others. And the long-term consequences for our community of essentially shutting down the healthcare system, if not permanently, then at least for a decade, would have been devastating. Yeah. So 
by slowing the spread of the disease until we were able to have vaccines to you know, decrease the severity and death rates associated with it until we had a better understanding of what treatments worked. The, the ventilator settings and the treatments that we were using in the very beginning actually increased death rates somewhat. You know, but it took us a while to figure that out because we were treating this the way that we treated other similar respiratory conditions. We thought that the treatments should be the same. Um, we were able to prevent a huge number of deaths and largely protect the healthcare system long enough to get through this. And and the the trick to public health, the trick to primary care both, are that when you're successful, the bad thing doesn't happen, and so everybody thinks you didn't need to be worried in the first place. Um, and and so it's hard for people to understand. I think for a lot of people to understand how necessary those measures were and how largely successful they actually were. But they do not come without a tremendous cost. Mm -hmm. And we've all paid that cost. We've paid it financially, we've paid it socially, we've paid it emotionally, you know, with our with our mental health, with our sense of community. And we're gonna continue paying that for several years as we rebuild and recover from this process. And Nobody can say that the adults in our community and the children in our community are not suffering the after effects of that in terms of increased risks of, you know, increased rates of depression, anxiety, substance use disorder, suicide, mental health issues. And that's where we're going to need to focus our efforts for the next, you know, five years while we try to recover from what has been an earth-shaking tragedy for all of us, even if it sort of went out with a whimper at the end. Mm -hmm. So interesting that you talk when we're thinking about, you know, what is the biggest crisis that we have facing us right now? You talked about the mental health, social, emotional well-being of our community as an, an, an artifact of, of what happened during the COVID period. And is that contributing to then the issues that we have around um, opioid use, um, yeah. substance abuse? Yeah, no question about it that we saw those rates go up during the pandemic, mm -hmm. and they're continuing as as the pandemic is reaching. And the technical term for that would just be calling it an endemic disease. It's present at low rates in society, right, and will be indefinitely. Yeah. Um, that that we've seen those rates go up, we've seen death from those things go up, and and that's not surprising because in large part substance use is a response to distress, you know, physical pain, emotional distress, uh, depression, mental health issues. In large part, substance use is an attempt to self-medicate for those things, and so when people are suffering, they self-medicate more, and that's what we're seeing, unfortunately. Yeah, what we're hearing a lot and seeing a lot in the news. Uh, recently is this uh, opioid, um, I don't know if we can call it an epidemic, but it's uh, pretty wide and um, serious. And more specifically, the fentanyl kind of crisis that we yeah. have locally. Why is fentanyl so dangerous? And what can we do to combat its use and abuse? So the, the answer to the question why is fentanyl so dangerous is a little bit technical. So with all medications that we use, there's a concept of a, a therapeutic window. The, the range between which a dose of a medication starts to be helpful and then the, the 
top end of that therapeutic window is the range at which it starts to become dangerous or harmful. Mm -hmm. And we have those with blood pressure medications and with, you know, heart medications and diabetes medications. And, you know, all medications have this, this window during which they have the effect you're looking for before, you know, so too low a dose doesn't do anything, too high of a dose starts causing problems, that space in the middle. And for a good medication, we want that window to be wide. We want there to be a lot of space in there where the medication is effective without becoming dangerous. Drugs of abuse or recreational drugs or illicit drugs or whatever you want to call them have a similar concept, although we don't usually talk about it that way. So the the dose at which the drug starts to have the effect that the person who's taking it is looking for, right? So you might think, you know, if we're talking about alcohol, that might be the the dose of the medication or the dose of alcohol that starts to relax you a little bit and, and lower your social inhibitions a little bit. And then the the top end, the dangerous end would be, you know, the the point at which you start to behave erratically or you black out from alcohol use or something, you know, where it becomes more immediately dangerous for you. And with fentanyl, that window between the amount that it takes to get a drug effect and the amount that can kill you is is just really, really narrow. And and it only takes a very small amount, the equivalent of a few grains of sand to actually be a fatal dose for most people. And, And so that's where that risk is. If you take that intentionally or accidentally there's just not a lot of range to get that dosing right and if you think about it if you're buying illegal drugs there generally isn't the same level of like quality control and concern for safety around manufacturing that there would be if you were buying a prescription doesn't have an fda it doesn't have an fda Mm -hmm. stamp of approval yeah that makes sense how how pervasive is this issue um in humboldt county do we have any data? Yeah, so actually I just finalized the data from last year, yesterday afternoon. So in Humboldt County last year, we had 74 deaths from fentanyl. 69 were deaths of Humboldt County residents and five were deaths of people who were not residents of the county but died from fentanyl in Humboldt County. Mm. Um, so depending on how you see somebody report out those numbers, they might look differently. You know, it might be a couple different higher or lower, depending on what, what data source they're using. But we had 74 deaths. I've heard you talk about this before, but when we think about a profile of someone who overdoses from drugs, you know, all of us may, may see a person or a type of person yeah. that, that, that comes to mind when you think about that overdose. But from what I understand, it's, it's running the gamut of individuals in our society. It absolutely, it absolutely is. So one of my jobs as health officer is to review the death certificates of individuals who, who die in Humboldt County and to try to understand what things are affecting our health and what things are ending our lives. And, and so I can tell you from having gone through those that the youngest person who died in Humboldt County from fentanyl last year was 22. And the oldest was 74, which is probably surprising to a lot of people. It doesn't fit Mm -hmm. the image that we have of people who use substances. Um, more than a third of those people died in their own homes. So again, we tend to think of people who use substances or we tend to think of people at risk for that as being unhoused or of a certain class of people, but 
but I can tell you that more than a third of the people who died were in their own homes at the time that they died from yeah. fentanyl use. And there were a number, one of the things that's recorded on death certificates is your highest level of education. So I can also tell you that there, while there were a few people who had not completed high school, there were also a handful of people who had master's degrees on yeah. that list. And it also records your customary employment. So I can tell you that they spanned pretty much every industry and every aspect of the mm -hmm. job market in Humboldt County. You know somebody, whether you know them well or they were somebody who worked at your grocery store or gas station or, you know, on your work site, you know somebody who died from fentanyl in our county last year. Yeah. One of the things that we're struggling with in schools is how do we address this in a way that is that doesn't scare students. We want students to be safe, right? I mean, that's our number one priority across the board is making sure that our students are safe. And yet we want to make sure that we're providing them the education. You've been um, significantly invested in and involved in direct training for staff around um, awareness on fentanyl. And then also this use of, I won't call it an antidote, but a, a, an immediate response to uh, an opioid overdose, which that is um, naloxone, and Narcan is a brand name, from what I understand, of naloxone. Tell us a little bit about that, and you know why is that significant, and why should we, why should we as a community know about nar Narcan naloxone? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it gets tricky because I, I will just address that naloxone Narcan thing just a little yeah. bit. So, so when the drug was first released, there was a single manufacturer of it, and drugs have a generic name in yes. this case naloxone, and then a brand name from the company who produces yeah. them Narcan. Oh, it's like a Hoover and a vacuum cleaner, right? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so or Jacuzzi and hot tub, right? The jacuzzi is actually a brand name, but nobody even knows that anymore. Um, so, Narcan is what most most non-medical people know, and so we tend to use that term, even though technically we should probably be saying naloxone because there are now multiple brand names that are available. Okay. Um, but I'm going to use Narcan because it is what most people recognize as, as the name. So, um, so I, I hope this isn't too graphic. Most people have never thought about what happens when somebody dies from an overdose or how people die. We just kind of have this image of you take too many drugs and you die. But with opioids, specifically what happens is it suppresses your ability to breathe. And and so your oxygen levels drop off and essentially you suffocate. And, and that happens because the receptors in the brain that control pain relief and, and um, euphoria also can have a contribution to the conscious drive to breathe. And when you get too much of an opioid in your system, it activates too many of those receptors all at the same time and stops the urge to breathe in you. If you administer Narcan to somebody who's in that state as quickly as possible, it gets onto those same receptors in the brain and it binds them, but it doesn't activate them. So essentially it blocks them. You could think of it as like putting your hand over, over a doorknob that has a keyhole in it. You're just blocking that keyhole so the key can't get into it. And, and that's what Narcan does. So it just blocks the effect of those opioids. And because of that, it is an absolutely safe, right, will not have an effect on somebody who is not, it doesn't have opioids in their system, way to temporarily block the effect of the opioids on the receptors in your brain that control breathing. Can get you breathing again long enough to keep your oxygen levels high enough to get medical help to that person. And with any disease, diabetes, 
severe allergies with anaphylaxis, substance use disorder, you have to live through the acute disease long enough to get medical assistance to have a chance to get better. And, and so that is what naloxone or Narcan can do for people. It can take somebody who is overdosing, who's dying right in that minute, and safely reverse that overdose long enough to keep them alive to maybe connect them to services to help them get help. Hmm. Now, sometimes we're using it in people who have a known history of, of substance use disorder, you know, they they know they're using drugs, we know they're using drugs, and they haven't gotten to a point where they're ready to address that illness yet, and we're trying to keep them alive long enough to do that. And sometimes we're using that in people who don't actually have a substance use disorder. They may have used drugs a single time. It may be a kid who tried a pill at a party and doesn't normally do that, right? So so it can be used in any of those situations. But, but having it available and widespread in the community in places where there might be a risk of overdose happening can save a life long enough to connect that person to treatment yeah. or to give them a chance to understand why it's maybe not safe to try drugs at parties, you know, that, that type of thing. So right. it, is, it is a really important tool. It's only one of the tools that we should be using because we obviously don't just want to actually reverse overdoses when they happen. We want to stop people from actually getting to the point of mm -hmm. having overdoses in the first place. Right. But the reality is some overdoses are going to happen. Some car accidents are going to happen. That's why we wear our seatbelts. You know, we're not encouraging people to get in accidents, but we recognize that sometimes accidents will happen and it's good to have safety, you know, life-saving safety devices available when that happens as well as trying to teach our kids to drive more safely so that they don't get in accidents in the first place, right? Yeah. So it, it requires both of those approaches. An article appeared in the press today about naloxone um, or consideration maybe from the FDA of having naloxone available over the counter as opposed, as opposed to how it is right now, which is prescription. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? I think it's great. Um, I, I do have actually some, some um, I guess what you might call social justice concerns is that in historically when medicines, when prescription medicines have been become available over the counter, they do tend to be a little bit on the expensive side. So mm -hmm. if any of you have ever bought like a Zyrtec or Allegra over the counter, you know, it's 30 or $40 a bottle, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> which is an allergy medication, which used to be prescription only, I think, 15, 20 years ago, but but isn't anymore. Um, and and so I do have concerns that that um, this may be something that's only accessible to people who yeah. are, you know, more financially well off. But but I do think it's a really important first step. And just so you know, they don't expect that to be available. It was approved for over-the-counter use. They don't expect it to be available till the end of the summer. But you actually can, in California, go to a pharmacy and ask for it, and the pharmacist can generate a prescription for it I for see. you. So you don't have to get a prescription from your doctor's office. You yeah. can actually just go to the pharmacy and get it. Oh, that's good to know. That's good to know. You know, you said nicely into this question about uh, equity social justice in our we, we talk about it extensively in our schools with our students and our staff in what ways do these terms social justice equity resonate with you in your role as a health officer and how do you advance that work that needs to be done in these areas within your role yeah so I mean, I guess I alluded to this a little bit earlier. I talked about some of my earliest memories and my, you know, how I ended up being a doctor has a lot to do with the fact that I came from a family where that was attainable. I came from a family with a doctor in it, right? And so I knew that was an option for my life. I 
in general, made good choices and didn't mess up the opportunities I was given too badly. But I also fully recognize that my success in life really came a lot from the opportunities that I was given as a child. And not everybody has those opportunities, whether it's you know, related to race or income level or exposure or health issues. There, there are things that affect our opportunities in life and our outcomes in life as children that change our ability to access success, right? I had a much higher chance of successfully becoming a doctor because I came from a family with a doctor already in it. I had a parent who knew how to walk me through the process of medical school applications. I had all of these advantages that many children do not have. And that's really what the process of, of social social justice, of, of equity is about, is recognizing that how we turn out has a lot to do with the opportunities that we're given as children or not given as children mm-hmm. and trying to not level the playing field. I think people have a knee-jerk bad reaction to that because it sounds like we're dragging some people down, but to actually give all people access to as many opportunities to be successful as possible. And successful doesn't mean becoming a doctor. You know, but successful means living a, a life that is safe, stable, right? protected that has opportunities to be to be who you want and do what you want to be yourself and and so that that really is where equity social equity social justice actually come into the picture and it's my job to ask questions when we're putting policies into place you know are there unintended consequences of this are there is this affecting some groups in you know in more than others, are are there issues there that we need to to make adjustments for? Right. So you talked about actually um, going, you know, switching to switching to relying on parents as part of that educational process when we had to send kids home and they were connecting remotely. That process looks really different for a stable family that has plenty of laptops and internet access at home than it does for a family that can't afford multiple laptops and maybe doesn't have stable internet service, maybe for financial reasons, maybe because they live in a geographic area where, you know, they they just don't have those lines that, you know, have good access to, to, um, internet connections. So, so if we're going to send kids home and, and recognize that that has to happen for other reasons, then we have to figure out how to make adjustments to support kids who don't have multiple laptops, who don't have stable internet connections, right? And, and if we don't do that, then we're basically abandoning a segment of our children and just saying your well-being and your success doesn't matter. Right. And, and so I, I think those are the types of things that we're talking about. And, and it's our job, all of us who, who work with our children in our communities, to think about do these policies, do these steps that we have to take, do they impact everybody the same? And if they don't, who do we need to be thinking about and how to protect or support those people so they also have a chance to be successful in this environment? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you are absolutely speaking to uh, someone who... Um understands that and who has seen that play out in good and bad ways. And I think that, you know, it's about removing barriers, right? Primarily is when we think about preparing students for their preferred future, whether it be as a doctor or any other profession, it's about making that opportunity so that they can make those choices. And uh, yeah, so important, so important. Thank you for highlighting that. 
All right, a couple more questions before we go into the lightning round. All right. So high school students that are out there that may be listening to this podcast or parents and family members with high school students may be thinking about some something in healthcare, maybe being a doctor or another aspect of healthcare. What what advice would you give someone who's considering a career in healthcare? I would say that there are literally hundreds of careers in healthcare. And as a whole, they are relatively stable careers with good benefits. They tend to come with health insurance and other things that while you as a high school student may not be thinking about yet are really important in your grown up life. Um, Locally, the County Medical Society has a program to help connect students who are interested with local healthcare providers who can um, mentor them, allow them to shadow and get some experience, as well as some educational processes around other other job um, opportunities. So things like X-ray technicians and phlebotomists, and and uh, you know, so. Being a doctor is not the only career in medicine. There are a lot of really great opportunities to help people in medicine and in public health. And they come with all kinds of degrees and background and training attached, not just being a doctor. So reach out if you're interested. We would love, you know, through the County Medical Society, we would love to help connect you to somebody who can who can give you some exposure. It's our attempt to bridge that equity gap, right? If you didn't come from a family that has healthcare background, you may not have that internal support and we'd like to help provide that hmm. for you. So once again, the name of that? So it's the Humboldt County Medical Society. Humboldt County yeah, Medical and I'm sorry, Society. I don't have the phone number on me, but you can Google it. Well, maybe we can add it to our podcast uh, credits. Um, right. on our website so that we have that reference for families if they are interested. Thank you for that. If there's one piece of advice you could give our listeners who are parents or guardians of children and youth, what would that be? I would say that um, I, I was the parent of a school-aged child at the beginning of the pandemic as well. So I, I would say that the last three years have been really hard. You almost certainly did the best you could. Be forgiving of yourself. If you're struggling, get help, um, either through your doctor or through a counselor, because our kids need us, right? They need us to to model resilience, to model an ability to deal with hardship. And, and we don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be successful. We don't have to be okay. We just need to model the ability to deal with hardships when they happen and and to recover and move on. So so the best thing you can do for your kids right now is actually forgive yourself for any shortcomings you may have had over the last three years and and model what it's like to live in an imperfect world and keep going. Mm. Thank you for that. Ready for lightning round questions? Got it. Here we go. So the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about these questions. So let's start off. What is your favorite thing to do when you're not working? If I have a few minutes, I read something. If I have days, I love to travel. Texting or talking? Talking. <laughs> favorite day of the week and why? Every day has the opportunity to be amazing. <laughs> and? And why your favorite day, day? If you I had to choose a day. Thursday. Mm. Okay. We can talk about that later. <laughs> um, favorite city in the world besides the one you live in? Okay, not technically a city, but but uh, the Isle of Orkney. Oh, 
Yeah. Scotland. Uh-huh. Very nice. We can talk about that too. Last non-work related book that you read. Do I have to finish it? So no, I, I no. read multiple books at a time. I just finished The Witch's Heart by Genevieve Gornachek and uh, The Library of the Dead by T.L. Huchu. And I'm in the middle of Sleeping Beauties, which is a collaboration between Stephen King and, and uh, his son. Oh, well, yeah. that sounds pretty fascinating. Tea or coffee? Not a big caffeine drinker. Oh. I, I guess coffee with okay. lots of cream and sugar a couple times a week. <laughs> All right. Um, they don't have the Narcan Luxon equivalent for coffee, right? For caffeine. It's I, just... I get migraines. I had to give up caffeine or regular caffeine consumption uh -huh. a long time ago. So. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Two words your colleagues would use to describe you. Uh, probably loud and um, passionate. Hmm. Thank you. The person you admire the most. So I know this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I have a, a, a younger sister whose kids were much younger than mine. So I had high school and college-age kids going into the pandemic. The people I admire right the most right now are every parent who made it through the pandemic with young school-age children without either killing themselves or their kids. Like, it was crazy difficult mm -hmm. to try to work full-time and manage school for your kids and have everybody at home all the time. And I'm just so impressed by the parents that pulled this off. I don't think I could have. Yeah, yeah, tough thing. Sitting at the beach or watching the beach from a boat? Anything at all to do with the beach. Uh, but my favorite would be actually to be under the water on the mm, beach, scuba or snorkel. Oh, nice. And finally, is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? I'm going to go with the obvious answer here and say only if the crackers are actually made from animals. Mm, that's a fair answer. I think so. Dr. Candy Stockton, thank you so much for being on our Humco Learn podcast today. It's been an absolute pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.